you don't still have your Bibles turned, let's all turn our Bibles to Daniel as we begin a new study, a series of four studies in the 12 chapters of Daniel, Lord willing, over the next four weeks. I mentioned briefly last week that part of the reason for this study is that we just finished a major section in Matthew's Gospel, which is our primary study that we're working through as a church, and that every time we hit these mile markers in Matthew, we'll take a brief break for an Old Testament series that corresponds with things we either have just covered in Matthew or maybe will cover soon. To some respects, the series through Daniel is going to do a little bit of both. It's going to help us look back at the things we just covered in Matthew chapter 10 about Jesus' commands to his disciples for how to live in a world that will oftentimes be hostile toward his followers. That theme will be very prominent in Daniel. Also in Daniel chapter 7, there is a very key text that I've referenced several times, and so I wanted to make sure that as we go through a gospel like Matthew, when you hear Jesus refer to himself using this phrase, the Son of Man, you need to know the book of Daniel. And my guess is that many of us don't really know the book of Daniel And even if we do, it's probably not fresh, so this will be a good refresher. What I know about Daniel is what I learned in Sunday school. Dare to be a Daniel. If you've ever heard that song before, it would humor me if you would just let me know, yeah, I know what you're talking about, Phil. Dare to be a Daniel. This tells me how many of you went to Sunday school, essentially. Maybe some of you did and you're too afraid to admit it because you don't want me to put you on the spot to sing. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm and dare to make it known. That's the chorus of the well-known Sunday school song, Dare to be a Daniel. The question I have for you is, did God give us the book of Daniel so that you could be more like Daniel? Well, let's find out. Dare to be a Daniel. We've read already a big chunk of chapter 1 and chapter 3. We're going to read a few other chunks throughout our time as we can get the general gist. But I want to summarize the story so that way everybody, regardless of your familiarity with Daniel, will hopefully have some sense of like, okay, we're all on the same page here. Daniel was a story around 600 B.C., It's a story about, if you look at the very first verse, Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So the nation of Israel, which is God's chosen people, 600 years before Jesus comes onto the scene, is living in the southern part of what we would call Jerusalem or Israel today. So Jerusalem would have been that capital city of the people of Israel And so they're living there, and Babylon comes and besieges it. They destroy it. They destroy its temple. They take people, and they relocate them and make them refugees east from where they lived. So if you want to think of a map, you'd have Assyria to the north of Israel. You'd have Egypt to the south, and you would have Babylon to the east. And so they're moving eastward. I've mentioned several different times when you're studying the Bible, the directional 
place that you're going, when you're moving east, typically you're moving away from God's presence. And if you're moving west, you're moving toward God's presence. In this case, they're being captured. They're being moved east, away from God's land that he promised them. And it's all because of their disobedience. God warned them many, many times as a nation that if you obey him and you keep your covenant and keep your end of the deal, that he would protect them. And that these sort of things wouldn't happen to them. But they worshipped false gods. They intermarried with people that weren't Israelites. They bowed down to idols. And so they disobeyed and they broke their covenant. And so God's hand and hedge of protection around Israel was removed. And Babylon comes in and takes these people out. Many people are going to die just in that first verse when you read, they were besieged. There was two waves of people that were moved. The first wave was that before the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar that is, wanted his people to be infiltrated with all these Israelites, he wanted to first take young people, and this is why this first chapter is especially helpful, or even really much of Daniel, even though we don't know all the timetable, but it says youth. This first chapter gives us the idea, many people think that they're teenagers, which I think might shed new light, especially for some of you young people in the room, whether you're a teenager or a young college student. Put yourself in the shoes of these men throughout the story and think, how might you respond? Having maybe your mom and dad get slaughtered before your eyes and then get ripped out of your home, taken over to a new land that's not your home, and then being taught and indoctrinated with different forms of worship, different gods and different plurality of ways of living. It was a pluralistic society. So if you want to think about the Jewish people here, Daniel and his buddies, they had a vision of there's one God. Babylon had all kinds of gods. And so they're taken into this foreign land and they're required to eat a certain diet, get a certain form of education, Because the king wants that first wave of young people to grow up and be indoctrinated with his teaching and his ways so that they would then become Babylonites and that when the rest of the Israelites come, they would then say, hey, be like us, assimilate, be a part of Babylon. And that was the strategy. A very important chapter that you need to have referenced in your mind that a lot of people, when you turn over to Daniel chapter 9. Look at Daniel 9 with me real quick. This is very helpful background information to the whole book of Daniel. So on page 746, we're going to just look at those first two verses, and I want you to just notice this small detail here. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahuserus, by descendant a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Might seem like a random thing to point out, but let me just fix your eyes on these words right here. The word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. Did you see that? Jeremiah is a prophet. He's contemporary with Daniel. He's alive. He's preaching. And in fact, it seems as if he's actually reading the words of Jeremiah in some sort of scroll or books. Everybody follow me there? 
Well, when we go back and read all of Jeremiah, it's a long book. I'll just quickly summarize a certain portion of it. There's a conversation between a false prophet in Jeremiah 28 that says, hey, when we get to Babylon, we should do everything we can not to live in the city of Babylon, but we should live on the outskirts and not mix with the people of the Babylonians. And it's very clear in Jeremiah 28 that that's a false prophet. That's not from God. Jeremiah 29 then brings a true word from the Lord, and it says, no, seek the peace of the city, live, build homes, raise your family, plant gardens, establish yourself. You're going to be there a little while, 70 years to be specific. So, so notice the contrast in Jeremiah 28 to 29. With that background, knowing that Jeremiah more than likely heard that message in 28 and 29 to see the contrast of like, that's not the way you're supposed to live. You're supposed to actually live with the people. That then becomes very significant for how we think, do we want to be like Daniel? What's Daniel doing? And is he obeying those commands in Jeremiah 29, which is seek the peace of the city? Which is a baffling thought, is it not? That if you're a refugee being overwatched and cared for and demanded certain things by people who slaughtered friends and family members and pulled you out of your home and make you live in Babylon, that you're saying, yeah, we're going to pray for and seek the well-being of the Babylonians. Anybody feeling the tension now of like, that would be hard? Dare to be a Daniel, huh? That, that's quite a daring thing to do. So now I want to focus a few details of chapter 1 that we didn't read yet. So look now at chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, and this will helpfully summarize what I'm just talking about in regards to the indoctrination process of these youthful adolescents, Daniel and his friends. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, which is the southern part of Israel where Jerusalem is. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. So Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Now when you read this and you don't know what these names mean, it sounds like, okay, they're in a new land and they got new names. Whoop-de-doo, let's keep moving on. But you shouldn't move on. That in and of itself is really summarizing and recapping my whole little introductory points on the idea that this would have been really challenging to have these people force these things upon you. Would you like your name to be changed? I mean, maybe some of you never liked your name. But I want you to look at these names, and I want you to notice the way that each of the Hebrew names, so this is in verse 6, notice the way they end. E-L for Daniel, A-H for Azariah, A-H for Hananiah, and E-L for Mishael. Each of those letters that I'm pointing out, if you were to translate them over in Hebrew, all of them are shorthand for either God, which is E-L, for the supreme God. L is a shorthand phrase for God. A-H is shorthand for Yah, or as Yahweh. In other words, Daniel's name means God is my judge. Azariah's name means Yahweh is my help. Hananiah's name means Yahweh has been gracious to me. Mishael's name means 
who is what God is. Do you know where this is going now? Verse 7. Belshazzar, Daniel's new name, it means, may the god Bel protect his life. If that's not a slap in the face, I don't know what is. It's like if my name didn't mean lover of horses, which is awesome, isn't it? Thanks, Dad. (laughs) But it meant lover of Jesus, and I get captured out of the United States and get thrown into some other place, and they say, your name's now going to be lover of Satan. Wouldn't you be like, that's a slap in the face. And every time you hear that name, hey, Belshazzar, I'm not going to call you Daniel. Do you see what's going on here? Azariah's name gets changed to Abednego. Sir, is that right? Yes, Abednego, whose name means servant of Nabu, another one of the false gods. So instead of Yahweh is my help, I'm a servant of a false pagan god. Hananiah's name meant Yahweh has been gracious. He becomes Shadrach, which means command of Aku, who's the moon god. And finally, Mishael. This one might be the worst. Who is what God is, is what his name means. And his name becomes Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. In other words, again, a false god, Aku, takes his name, and similar to what I was saying, instead of Phil, lover of Jesus, Phil, lover of Satan. A real play on words there. This is what's happening in this story. They're being dragged out of their homes, given new identities. They're being taught new things. They're being indoctrinated with philosophies, religion, eating patterns, etc. And so, we see in the story that was read that I'll recap because we just read it in Daniel 1, that Daniel and his friends decide, well, we're not going to eat what everyone else is eating in this little club of youthful men that he's trying to raise up as new leaders in Babylon. Why do you think they didn't eat the king's food and drink the king's wine? Well, there's a lot of different debates because it's not really that clear. If you were to say, Well, it's because it was defiled and therefore it was sacrificed to certain false gods and therefore they didn't want to worship false gods by eating food sacrificed to idols. You'd say, well, then why did they eat the vegetables? How do we know those weren't sacrificed to false idols? Or what if you say, well, maybe he's doing a Nazarite vow. And then you say, well, the Nazarite vow didn't include some of these things in regards to why did he drink wine or whatever else. Anyway, the point is is that every explanation doesn't really do great justice, and so I don't think we should be definitive on that point. More than likely, I would take the idea that they knew that the whole project of them being there was so that the king would get credit for raising up these new leaders, and if they went along with everything, then it would say, well, why are you strong? Why are you smart? Why are you beautiful? Why are you the next leader? I did all that for you. I think that they said, no, enough is enough. We're drawing a line. And that's why I don't want to be overly dogmatic about what the line is. And that's one of the hard parts of this passage is because there's times where I'm like, well, why don't you draw the line here? Why'd you draw it here? 
Say, for example, look down at the passage again in chapter 1. And notice it says in verse 17, As for these four youth, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all the visions and dreams. And then when you hop over to chapter 2, you're going to notice that in verse 2 it says, The king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and they couldn't tell him the, the dreams. And then the king says, well, because you can't tell me my dream, I'm going to kill all of you, including Daniel and his friends. In other words, let me make this crystal clear. In verse 2, it says that there are enchanters, sorcerers, magicians, and then it says in chapter 1, verse 17, that Daniel and his friends, they understood visions and dreams, that they were schooled in this sort of sorcery stuff. Do you see what I mean about, why don't you draw the line there of like, yeah, we don't do sorcery. We don't do magic. This is the part of the Sunday school lesson where the teacher doesn't say, dare to be a Daniel. Go learn sorcery, boys and girls. It's hard to know sometimes when you're reading these texts, where do you draw the line? But one thing is clear, they are drawing the line with the food. And they are saying, well, no, no, you will not get credit for our success. We're going to depend upon God, so therefore we're going to eat only vegetables. And if we get stronger, then you'll know that it was from our God. So give us 10 days. And what was the way the story worked out? They ended up being stronger than all the other boys. And therefore, God alone would get the glory. They made no public proclamation of their intentions. They didn't stage some food strike. They didn't obviously use any internet and social media to tell everybody and post pictures of their meal and say, hey, look what we're eating today. They did it quietly. They approached the chief official and asked for permission, hey, we don't want to partake in the rest of this. This is why I think the New Testament scriptures are going to say things like, live a quiet, peaceable life amongst the pagans that you live among. Daniel, in this sense, is a good example. Dare to be a Daniel in that sense. The chief official did not agree with them and refused, right? But he did not reject them violently. And it said that God caused that official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. We need to remember throughout these stories that the bottom line is that Daniel was educated in the ways of the Babylonians. And this included, as I said, all kinds of magic arts. And in fact, when you look at verse 20, it makes it seem that since he was better than all the other magicians and enchanters that were in the kingdom, it's like he graduated top of his class, summa cum laude or something. You know. And so I want to just pause for a moment and ask you at this part of the sermon, to what extent do we as believers in God, should we draw a line between being in the world and not of the world? The language of Jesus and John chapter 17, if you're familiar with his high priestly prayer. I'm sending my disciples into the world. Didn't we get that a lot in Matthew 10? He's sending in, not drawing them out, sending in to the world. But not being of the world. Being distinct from the world. These are difficult questions, my friends. I don't think that there's clear-cut answers. If you're a person today that you like a lot of rules and you're hoping, here's 10 rules for how to be in the world and of the world, it's not coming. I'm not giving it to you. 
This is very much something where conscience, wisdom, discipleship community, loving the main things of the gospel and the Ten Commandments and the clear things that we know are true, and then applying them in the very gray areas of our lives. Any of you here want to get up on stage and say, God's will for every single one of you is that when you have children, it must be homeschooling. It must be private schooling. It must be public school education. These are the kind of debates that people have all the time today as Christians and talk that way. I don't think we should talk that way, friends. I don't think you should draw a hard line on an issue like that. There are good arguments that Christians have been making on each of those options of education, and so we need to think through as Christians, how do we go in the world like Daniel, but draw a line somewhere where we say, no, 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 that's too far. We are not of the world. We don't completely wrap our arms around all that the world has to offer and all the education system that the world has to offer, but these guys are getting educated, so it's not, you see, like there's a tension here. How about the arts and entertainment? Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City. He's since retired from that position. But since he has pastored a lot of different actors and actresses that work in the arts, he tells them, are there certain acting roles that you can or cannot take? Are there some times where you're, you're drawing a line, you're crossing a line of like, that's inappropriate. Christians have these conversations not just about roles they might perform in the arts, but about the entertainment we consume. Is it simply what the world tells us is rated a certain rating? And so, no, no rated R movies. Well, except if it's about Jesus. The Passion of the Christ, that was what that was an allusion to, you know. It was one of those things where I heard growing up, can't watch rated R movies, and then it was like all the Christians like, but we can watch this one, it's okay. Anyway, you guys didn't think that was funny, that's okay. How about politics? Can't you see how this is a difficult conversation in so many different areas? Our family, our social lives, the food we eat, the political engagements that we engage or don't engage in. These people, in the story of Daniel, are essentially going to become, as you read, raised up to the highest levels of authority in the political government of Babylon. It seems like they're doing what Jeremiah 29 is talking about, seeking the peace and prosperity of the city and almost, in a sense, partnering with Babylon, but not being all the way partnered with Babylon. Daniel was very much so, I think, a good example of what we heard just a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 10. Therefore, be shrewd like snakes and innocent like doves. The innocence throughout these stories, I think, is obvious, and so is the shrewdness. I think that might be a helpful phrase from Jesus that points us back to what we just covered and see the the innocence of Daniel and his friends. They did not mount angry assaults on their captors. They didn't violently lash back, even though maybe they had a right to, in some sense, like, You couldn't imagine what maybe is involved in verse 1 when it says they were besieged and then taken into this foreign land. But they were serpent-like. They were crafty in their strategy to remain faithful 
in their beliefs toward Yahweh. And as the story continues, you'll continue to see more evidences of this wise serpent behavior, but innocence to not fight evil for more evil. I think one of my favorite examples was what was read to us earlier. Look at Daniel chapter 3 again. In Daniel chapter 3, there's a story about the fiery furnace. And at this point, Daniel is nowhere to be found. At least, he's not prominent in the story. It's the three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. At least, that's their Babylonian names. And it's starting out the story in chapter chapter 3, verse 1, where King Nebuchadnezzar wants to build himself an image, a selim. It's the... Hebrew word for a statue. It's the same word in Genesis chapter 1, by the way, when it says God made us in his image or statue, selim. It means a representative of a god. That's what those were used for. There's a debate and discussion in chapter 3 by the scholars and academics as to whether or not this particular statue is of Nebuchadnezzar himself because he thought of himself as divine is a possibility. Or if it's one of the gods, maybe the premier Babylonian god. Either way, notice that in the beginning of chapter 1, it says that it's going to be big. See that in Daniel chapter 3? It says it's going to be 60 cubits, and its breadth 6 cubits. Isn't that big? And a lot of you are like, I don't know how much a cubit is. And that's when I'm wondering, I thought this was supposed to be an English translation. (laughs) Like, why don't they just tell us the little footnote, and just say, hey, it's 90 feet by 9 feet. In other words, only the Statue of Liberty is bigger in all the different statues and monuments in the United States. And that's in modern senses of a statue. And really, the Statue of Liberty is a helpful metaphor for you and I if you think, that's weird. These ancient civilizations, they want to put up statues of themselves? as a representative of something and have people notice it when they come by and it have political and social significance. I mean, that's what the Statue of Liberty is. Everybody does this. Nebuchadnezzar wants to do it to the worship of a false god, either himself or one of their Babylonian gods. And so he has this desire to have it built and it gets built and now he's got his dream And then everybody has to bow down and pray and worship it. But these three boys say, no, we're not going to. And look at the way they have courage. It's remarkable, is it not? Starting in verse 16. Notice the way they talk, the things they say. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Did they not have enough faith by saying, God will deliver us? But if he doesn't, you know, people talk that way today. 
that when you pray, you should pray as if it's going to happen, and then if it doesn't happen, it was because you didn't have enough faith. What a good example here of somebody who's affirming the power of God, who's affirming God's desire to save and deliver them, but at the same time knowing, and even if he chooses not to because he's sovereign and he will do whatever he pleases, here's what I'll tell you. We're not bowing down to your false God. And they do it so politely, right? They're about to be thrown into a fiery furnace. Oh, king, they say three times. There's one translation I read that said, majesty. They seem so calm when you think about it that way. So cool under the pressure, knowing the fire that's about to await them. The fire ended up being so hot that the people that were putting them in died. He asked to burn it ten times hotter than it normally was. And so they were put into the fire. And as you follow along, I want to read the rest of the story because it's fantastic. Look at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. By the way, that's a play on words. It says that the expression of his face, it's actually that same word, selim, the image of his face was changed. They wouldn't bow down to his image, and so now the image of his face is changed to fury. Verse 20. So he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, and their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. At this point, you stop. And you ask, so did he deliver them? Guess not. That's what it feels like. But you keep reading. Verse 24 says, The king Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. I would translate that phrase in terms of the way they would talk, a divine being, is what he's saying. So then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who was sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, 
nation or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they shall be torn from limb to limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the province of Babylon. Remember when I asked, did he deliver them? He sure did, but not like I was expecting. If you're reading the story chronologically and didn't have it told to you again and again with Dare to Be a Daniel stories in Sunday school. If you're hearing it afresh, that's quite a twist on the ending. He did deliver them, but he, he kind of didn't. He still got them thrown into the fiery furnace. And one of the things I love is that he was with them. He was with them. Didn't we just sing that earlier in the service? Never once did I ever walk alone. Never once scars and struggles, fiery furnaces. He's faithful. He's faithful. Dare to be a Daniel. They did not seek death. It's not like when they were in the face of death, they're like, we want to die. They refused to betray their God even in the light of real possibility of dying. And it seemed like they were going to. There are certainly ways that we want to dare to be a Daniel. But if this story doesn't make the point clear, I want to encourage you not to remember at this sermon or any Daniel sermon that silly song. It's not dare to be a Daniel. It's dare to trust your God. Would you? Would you trust a God who works like this? A God who has the ability to deliver you from most certain death. Do you think that chapter 3 somehow might point with the themes that are coming out of it? Impending death, certain death, I'll walk through, with you, through death, and you'll come out on the other side alive, unsinged by the fire. If that's not the story of Jesus, the angel of the Lord, that's my understanding of the angel son of God phrase, Jesus, the fourth person walking around in the fiery furnace, it's shouting Jesus to us. Jesus is all over the Old Testament, especially here in the early chapters of Daniel. The sovereignty of God is the main theme of Daniel as we start this first sermon of the series. We must trust that God's sovereignty surpasses the power of all men, even the most mighty of human rulers. You need to remember that Babylon at this time is the height of power. Greatest military the best economy, that's the reason why they besieged Jerusalem and took them out. They're conquering. They're growing. They're intellectually teaching and have the institutions. Though in exile, God has power to have his people prosper when they're faithful. The story of Daniel right from the very first two verses actually tells you that this story isn't just about Daniel. It's a story about God. Look at the verse, two verses again. If 
you read verse 1, you might think, okay, this sounds like a historical account. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, which, by the way, he was a really bad king, which is part of the reason why the next sentence comes that Jerusalem was besieged. Well, that's what you were going to get. That's what God promised. Verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Why did Babylon have success over the nation of Israel? Because of their strength? Because of their power and their intellect? Because God gave them Did you see that phrase? The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of the Babylonian king. That's not the last time you're going to see that, even in chapter 1. Look at verse 9. I mentioned this earlier with the food discussion. And God gave, same word, Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Why was it that Daniel was able to eat the vegetables and not the other food? Because of God. God was at work. God gave favor to Daniel. This is not because Daniel had some sort of charisma. It seems like he's a smart, intelligent, good-looking guy. He's the top of the class. But it's because of God. Lastly, look at the last part of the story. Verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all the literature and wisdom and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Are you getting it? God, God, God. He he is the story behind the story. He is the invisible hand that is moving and orchestrating the events of these stories. And you're supposed to see these little references to God doing this as the author's way of telling you, this isn't just a story about Daniel. This is a story about the God of Yahweh that is being challenged by the Babylonian gods. That's what verse 2 is about. Look at that one more time. When they took the city of Jerusalem out, what did they take with them? Vessels of the house of God. They go into the temple, they destroy the temple, and they take some artifacts, some vessels. And the whole point of that is in the Near Eastern wars between the different nations— You would do that because it was, your God didn't save you. Ha! Our gods are stronger than your gods. That's what is going on right here. Remember chapter 3. Flip over. You'll see that this is a battle between the gods. Remember the way that King Nebuchadnezzar is talking in chapter 3. And he says in verse 15. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Could that be more blasphemous? Dare to trust your God. That's the point of all of Daniel, but especially these early stories. God's wisdom is the only one in chapter 2 who will reveal the dream. We've not looked at chapter 2 much, but the quick recap, it's a long chapter, and we're not going to read all of it, is that the king wants to know what his dream was. So he asks all of his magician people, 
hey, who knows my dream? And they're like, well, tell us what it was and we'll tell you what it means. No, no, no. Who knows what the dream was before I even tell you the dream? I want to know the dream and the interpretation. Nobody knows the dream. Nobody knows the interpretation. But then Daniel finds out, hey, the king's looking for somebody to interpret his dream. So he prays to God. Because the story is about a man who turns to his God and his God finds favor for him, not just in chapter 1 or not just Abednego and his friends in chapter 3, but in chapter 2 as well, that he turns to God, he prays, and God grants him the revelation of the king's dream. And he goes and tells the king what his dream is, and then he tells him what his dream means. And because of that, look at the way chapter 2 ends. Daniel made a request of the king, last verse, 49, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. Meaning, Daniel is again finding favor in the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar, and he's being put in a position where he's in a strategic spot to help even these other guys get their new spots in their political system of government here. Who did that? God. God gave him the revealing of a mystery that no one could know. The whole point of chapter 2 is to show that all the other Babylonian magicians, they, they can't cut it compared to one single guy who turns to God in prayer. Dale and his friends they have courage and trust in God. So here's what I want to close with in terms of this idea of trust. I want us to look at this dream the way Daniel interprets it. So here's the dream. The dream is that Nebuchadnezzar sees a statue. And this is before chapter 3, so the statue that he has isn't made yet. But the top of the statue is gold, and the middle of the statue is silver, and then it moves down to bronze, but then the bottom of the statue is clay. And that's the dream. And Daniel's going to say what the dream means, but there's one important detail. It says that there's a rock that was not cut by man. It was a God-made rock, if you want to put it that way. And it will crumble the whole statue, this giant monstrosity. Imagine like a little rock, and you throw it at the Statue of Liberty, and the thing goes, choom. Like, wouldn't that be kind of hilarious? That's the dream. Dreams are weird, right? It's a weird dream, and so that's what it is. So what's Daniel say the interpretation is? Let's read it. Daniel 2, 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, the image, mighty, and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold, and its chest and its arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, and all together they were broken pieces, and because like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream now we will tell the kings its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has been given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given 
wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix one with another in marriage. But they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And the days of those kings, the God of heaven, will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is true. Sure. Isn't that awesome? Do you get what the point of the dream was? There's a rock, a small rock. And it's going to crush all the kingdoms of this world. But this rock is going to grow into a mountain, and it cannot be destroyed. And it will rule over all the earth. I wonder who the rock is. I don't know who the other kingdoms are. People make all kinds of guesses. Might be Persia, might be Assyria, might be later Rome. That's not the point. The point, I think, is that Jesus Christ, the one who was with Daniel and his friends all through this story, giving favor, Jesus Christ, the one that was in the fiery furnace, that went through death and came out on the other side unsinged. Jesus Christ is the stone that the builders rejected, and he has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone shall be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. That's Luke chapter 20. I think when we get to the Gospels, we see that Jesus is the stone that was rejected but by that rejection and by that death, by that small seeming stone, when it seemed like, oh, that's not going to do anything. That Jesus, the cross, that's going to upturn all the kingdoms and systems of this world. That's going to flip the whole world upside down. No, not that little stone. Stone that was rejected. Not cut by human hands. It's a divine stone. It made them all crumble. Jesus is that stone. Jesus is the one whom you should dare to trust, the one who put on trial for religious claims that he was the Messiah, facing death just like Daniel's friends. He refused to give in and looked at his murderers in the face and gave up his life. 
so that it would flip the whole world upside down, so that a kingdom would be established, that it would start to grow, like Jesus would say later in a parable, like a small mustard seed, and keep growing and keep growing and find itself here in Palatine, Illinois, because that's exactly what's happened. The kingdom of God is already here. The stone has already come. The stone has already been thrown and upheaved all of the kingdoms of this world. It's not like it's going to happen. It's not a prophecy that we're waiting anymore. It has happened in Jesus. So do you believe it? Do you dare to trust a God who's done that for you and live as if that's your reality? Or are you going to so assimilate with all the kingdoms of this world? Because I think one of the best parts for this story is for you to realize the brittle bottom of the kingdoms of this world. They look good on the top, don't they? They look so shiny with their gold head and then their silver chest. But the bottom's going to fall out. Every time you make allegiance with the kingdoms of this world, you need to realize it is quicksand. The bottom's going to fall out at some point. So get aligned with the kingdom that's going to continue to grow and take over the whole earth one day. This isn't just a dream. This is reality. Do you believe it? Do you dare to trust this God? Because this is what the gospel is all about. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this sobering reminder and word. As we're surrounded by so many different kingdoms and messages, kingdoms of beauty, kingdoms of intellect, kingdoms of worldly power and success through political persuasion. God, help us to know how to navigate these kingdoms, to not fully give our allegiance to them, but to be in the world but not of it, and give our allegiance completely to the kingdom that will never fail. It will never be destroyed. Hallelujah. What good news that is for each of us that would lay hold to that kingdom and say, that's our kingdom. This is not the story of Daniel. This is our story. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you for the living and active word that we have before us. Help us to see and savor the gospel in Daniel this week and the weeks to come. And convict us and guide us and lead us to greater faithfulness where we will draw the line at times and say no. We will not bow down to your God. Give us that grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, the courage and boldness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.